Section 21 of By the Marshes of Minas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marie Christian. By the Marshes of Minas by Sir Charles G. D. Roberts. The Maid of the Drift, Part 1. Being an adventure of orderly sergeant Peter Cunliffe of the Blank Company, Connecticut Volunteers, stationed at Annapolis Royal, January 1755, A.D. Emerging from the thick woods south of the Habitants River and coming suddenly upon the open crest of Gasparo Ridge, I caught my first glimpse of Grand Prey Village far down upon the skirt of the spacious Minas Valley. Much had I heard of Grand Pre, chief settlement of these Acadian folk whom we had conquered and torn from the crown of France. And now that my eyes rested upon it, full little likeness did I find therein to my own Connecticut hamlets. Its one snowy street, along by the marsh edge, was beaded, in a manner of speaking, with black roofs, wide-gabled and flaring at the eaves. Here and there along the street, stiff and tall as the spire of the village church, rose the leafless towers of the Lombardy poplars, while behind and about the cottages huddled the squat shapes of apple tree and willow. I cast a curious eye out over the dead white levels of the famed Acadian marshes to the shifting tide fields of minus water and the blue-black rampart of Mount Blumadon guarding its mouth. All this ample scene I took in at a sweep, so that I have remembered it as if graved upon my brain. It was but one look, however, and that a brief one. Then came the snow. It came thick, dry, fine, swirling fiercely on a bone-piercing blast, and between two gasps, as it were, I found myself imprisoned in a whirlwind. Not three paces before me or upon either hand could I see. Had the trail not been deep-trodden, I should have lost it in a trice. But as it was, my feet striking the hard side ridges of frozen snow kept me straight. When the wind blew dead in my teeth, I bowed my head, leaned up against it sturdily, and made some way. But anon it would ease of a sudden whereupon I would stumble forward all but headlong, and anon, ere I could recover, it would swoop with roar and whistle upon my flank, nigh routing me. To prevent my cloak being whisked away, I had to keep my arms folded close, which made balance hard to maintain in the face of this vindictive buffeting. Right heartily did I curse my heavy and smooth-soled jackboots, ill-fitted for a march like this and I growled at my folly in having refused the old Acadian's offer of moccasins that same morning, when, my horse having on a sudden gone lame, I was forced to leave him at old Masson's cabin on the upper habitant's stream and push forward afoot with my dispatches. What with fighting the wind, keeping the drift out of my eyes, catching for breath, and condemning my boots, I was soon in a fine ill-humor and I had calculated, before giving up the horse, that I might achieve to reach Halifax that same night. But no step beyond Grand Prey for me this day, I grunted to myself. 
At last, a black mass loomed suddenly before me through the drift, and under shelter of it, the air cleared a little, revealing a thicket of firs. At this point, the trail turned sharply down into the valley. But my journeying was not eased by the change, for the wind came terrifically along the open hillside, and my feet proved even less manageable on the slope than on the level. Nevertheless, I made advance, for whether I walked or plunged or fell, it was ever downhill, ever so much the nearer to a grand prey fireside. Now, when I had thus with more determination than dignity accomplished a good portion of the descent, the unexpected happened, as it will. Under my very feet appeared a woman's figure, cloaked and muffled, crouched in the middle of the way. With a huge effort I saved myself from stumbling over her. As it was, I struck her right smartly with my foot and cried out, fearing I had hurt her. She stirred and sat straight up with a startled exclamation. By the voice I knew that she was young, but her face, hidden by a heavy cloak which wrapped her whole form, I tried in vain to see. "'Pardon me, mademoiselle,' I said in French, "'but I almost fell over you. "'This beastly drift. "'One can't see past his nose. "'Allow me to help you. "'Are you hurt?' "'Oh, but no, monsieur, I assure you,' "'she cried in a laughing voice "'and sprang lightly to her feet. "'This dreadful storm, that's all. "'It almost tired me out.' So I just sat down and covered up my head to get my breath, you see. To my ears, this was the sweetest voice I had ever heard. It seemed like a ray of clear sunlight across the whirling dusk of the storm. It must, thought I, come from lovely lips. Such a voice could not be without beauty to neighbor it. But aloud I said, It is no place here for such as you, mademoiselle. I beg that you will let me conduct you to the nearest shelter. At this she laughed very prettily. But I am none the worse for this, monsieur, she exclaimed. I am Acadienne. We do not fear storms, we. Only I got tired out. I was coming over from the Gasparo when the storm caught me. I must make haste down to the village. That way lies my way also, mademoiselle, said I, with perhaps more eagerness than necessary, so wrought her voice upon my heartstrings. If you will not let me serve you as escort, I pray you of your charity serve me as guide, for I am a stranger and confused in this pother. Since you acknowledge, monsieur, she answered with a delicate mockery in her tone, that it is you, not I, who need the help. For your humility, so rare a virtue in a man and Englishman, I will help you. You may walk down to the village with me, and I will show you the way. But for all her willful spurning of my succor, it was instantly clear that she required me. The wind, clapping huge hands upon her heavy cloak, whisked her light form hither and thither, with a most fatiguing incivility. I could not endure to see it. Mademoiselle, I pleaded, let me entreat you to take my arm and steady yourself. This wind is too violent for you. Blown up against me for an instant, she as instantly fluttered away out of reach of the hand which I put forth to detain her. I see that you go not so very steadily yourself, she retorted, for all your stature, monsieur. I grew subtle in my wits as her willfulness worked upon me. Alas, mademoiselle, said I, 
you penetrate my weakness. It was but my device to gain your help again. I cannot deceive you. You see how I go slipping about in these great boots, and how the wind makes merry with my inches. I pray you take my arm to steady me, and solve my vanity by letting me think my bulk may break the gale for you a little. Since you are so modest, I will take your arm and help you to walk steadily, monsieur. She assented, coming up upon my left side and trustfully slipping a small mittened hand under my cloak. And, yes, you do keep off the wind very well. Big men are often quite useful, but they are often so stupid. Have you not observed it, monsieur? As she spoke, the hood of her cloak fell open, and I saw the most radiant of faces upturned to mine. I trembled, veritably, as the enchantment of those great laughing eyes smote into my heart. The face was a clear, pale olive, the ruddy attestation of health aglow upon cheeks and lips. I was bewildered. For the moment I quite lost my wits. I desired desperately to prove to her that I did not fall within her swooping condemnation of big men. I burned to say nice things and to say them with that nicety which would commend me in her eyes. But alas, my tongue was dumb. Not often has it so shamelessly failed me as there on the Grand Pre hillside. She appeared to misunderstand my silence. Perhaps she thought that, being large and an Englishman, and stupid, I was offended. Be that as it may, she quit her raillery and asked with a kindly warmth of interest, Have you journeyed far, monsieur? You seem nice spent. I have come all the way from Annapolis, mademoiselle, said I, and in much haste, for I bear dispatches to the governor at Halifax. My horse went lame on a sudden last night, and I have come on from old Masson's afoot this morning. You have done well, monsieur, and in those boots, said she, and you do well now to turn aside and bide in grand prey till the storm lightens. There was something of a searching earnestness in the look she turned upon me, but its significance slipped me at the time. Indeed, you wrong me, I answered in haste. This storm would not stay me or turn me from the straight path. But I have papers also for that good friend of the English, Monsieur Giles de la Marie, of Grand Pre Village. It is to him, mademoiselle, I would pray you guide me. Do you realize, she asked very gravely after a pause, that these are perilous times for the bearer of dispatches? How do you know, monsieur, that I am not a spy of the Black Abbey? For the danger, said I, with as grand an air as one may well assume in a gale of wind. For the danger, if there be any, I thank heaven. I have found your Acadie very safe and tame hitherto. And for your treachery, mademoiselle, let me hazard it that if you be a traitor, there is no woman true. Though I know not so much as your name, I have looked into your eyes, and I dare swear that a man's life and honor both would rest safe in the keeping of your loyalty. My speech was earnest, perhaps, for an acquaintance so exceeding brief. She thrust off to arm's length and dropped me a little curtsy. For my name, monsieur, she exclaimed, mocking my stilted phrases. It is Lise Leblanc, at your service, and for my loyalty, your confidence, great as it is, does it no more than justice. It is a name of melody, I muttered, savoring it softly on my tongue. To this, if she heard it, she made no reply, and for a space we pushed on in silence. 
The conversation, it is to be remembered, had taken longer in the making than in the telling, for it is ill talking in a hurricane of snow, and there was breath to be gasped for, and words blown incontinently away had to be repeated. So by now we were come well down into the valley. I was content with the silence, the feel of her small hand within my arm, the pressing of her slim shoulder to my side, gave me unspeakable satisfaction. The more I took note of this, the more I grew amazed. Peter, my son, I said to myself presently, of a surety thou art in love, and so lightly overthrown too. Fie upon thee, and thou this thirty year a bachelor? Well do I know what thou'lt be doing. Thou wilt get leave of absence this business done, and returning in foolish haste to Grand Prey, thou'lt set thyself to woo this maid in right New England fashion. And here I laughed softly, being by nature hopeful. The girl stopped. There is nothing to laugh at, monsieur, she cried quickly. I felt abashed. I laughed but for sheer joy at my good fortune in meeting you, mademoiselle, I stammered. You are uttering but light breath of compliment, monsieur, she answered very seriously. But indeed, in having met me, you are more fortunate than you dream. Here is Grand Pre. And peering through the whirl of drift, I made out the dim shape of a cottage. Listen, she went on. I have let you come so far because I could not see clearly in my mind what was best to be done. You must now make haste back. Take the Pisiquid trail and put many miles between you and Grand Pre ere you sleep. But no, you must first rest and eat. This storm is a hiding in itself. I will take you to the house of the good curé, Father Fafard, whom you can trust. But you must not linger. You must get away from this place while the storm lasts. I stared down in dumb bewilderment at her eager, determined face. But how, mademoiselle? What do you mean? I managed to gasp. How can I leave Grand Pre without doing my errand to Monsieur de la Marie? And why should I leave Grand Pre by stealth? It is not so I have come. She made a little impatient gesture, though why she should expect me to understand on so slight an explanation and to obey her blindly was something I could not well comprehend. Oh, she cried, but it is death for you to go on to Monsieur de la Marie's. Listen, the black abbe is there. His savages from the Shubinacati are there. It is for you they are watching. The black abbe knows you have left Annapolis with dispatches, both for Halifax and for Monsieur de la Maurie, against whom he seeks proof of dealings with the English. If you go forward now, your papers will never reach their goal, and you will never see Halifax. It is always hard for me to believe in a stone wall, till I run my head against it. I smiled upon her, well pleased at her anxiety, which seemed to be, in part, on my own account. End of section 21. The Maid of the Drift, part 1.